folks so uh no thank you to Streamyard. i don't know what's going on with that but we're over here on zoom and i have with me uh dr frank jackson he is a professor emeritus of philosophy at australian national university he is a legend uh, as many of you will know um all of you will know um i'm really excited to talk to him today we're going to be talking about philosophy of mind type stuff and uh, mary and all that good stuff i'm really excited to jump in with him so let's just jump right in uh dr jackson thanks so much for for coming on the podcast uh, good to be here, Parker. Yeah, so um, you've mentioned before that uh, even though you now reject the Mary argument, uh, you've been gratified that so many people have enjoyed it and have gone in deeper into philosophy because of it. Um, and I, I'm one of those people. I love the argument and I have benefited from it. I've gotten more excited about philosophy because of your argument. Um, but I wanted to ask you, what are some arguments that got you excited about philosophy originally? Well, my, my parents are both philosophers and they went back to the days when a lot of philosophy was done in discussion. Mm. Um, we're a bit more into uh, publishing articles in journals and publishing books these days. But back in that time, a huge amount of philosophy was done uh, in conversation, um, sometimes over coffee. Uh, sometimes wine was consumed. Mm. Uh, now, of course, there's still a fair amount of that goes on, but it was, was very dominant back in those days. So I heard a lot of philosophy, and I thought it was a exciting, interesting subject. And I started life as a math student, but thought I'd do a bit of philosophy on the side because it seemed fun. <laughs> and what happened? The sort of the philosophy on the side became the main course, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, for lots of reasons. I mean, one reason, a purely personal one, uh, the philosophy students at universities seem to have uh, a bit more fun than the mathematics students. <laughs> a bit more. <laughs> this is not irrelevant when you're at university. Yeah. Um, and also, I think, uh, truth be told, uh, uh, I was a perfectly adequate mathematician, but I think I was better at philosophy and naturally. You know, like choosing between golf and tennis. If you're better at tennis, you play tennis. Uh, yeah. So I think that's that's the background. As far as philosophy of mind goes, when I was an undergraduate doing those philosophy courses, at first on the side and then as the main course, um, the big issue in Australia back then was physicalism and David Armstrong, Brian Medlin, Jack Smart. So that was the exciting issue everyone was talking about. So that, that's what got me into philosophy of mind. Okay, that's awesome. So you. If I got this right, both your parents were philosophers? Oh, that's right, too. They're both philosophers, yeah. Wow. Uh, what, what were they interested? Were they around for, for your uh, your Mary paper? Epi, Epiphenomacalia? Uh, no, they, they, they died by then. Um, the, Dad had uh, me in his early 30s. Mum was a bit younger. So uh, uh, I'm trying to think uh, exactly how the dates went. Uh, It sounds ridiculous. I'd actually have to look up a calendar to be absolutely certain. What I am certain of is that Dad never heard the Mary paper. 
Okay. He'd long retired by then. Um, and it sounds funny, although I listened to their philosophy discussions and very much enjoyed them, I didn't engage with them philosophically so much. Hmm. Uh, back hmm. then, it was partly I was a math student back there primarily, yeah. and partly uh, I talked more to my fellow students and to the people who were teaching me at Melbourne University. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I guess it's uh, you're you're kind of destined to be uh, a great philosopher. Both both your parents being philosophers is pretty epic. Uh, it's really cool. So, I have to bring up the uh, the Mary argument. Uh, I'm sure, like, you know, you have a lot of other really interesting things to say. I know that you do. I've seen your other more of your work, but Mary, you know, the this this argument has gotten deep into uh, philosophical literature into into the minds of of philosophers. Um, so I have to bring it up, or my my uh, audience will kill me, but. Um, it's come from this paper, Epiphenomenal Qualia. Um, and you're, you, in this paper, you give a, a particular instantiation of what's come to be known as the knowledge argument. Can you just explain, like, what, what is the uh, knowledge argument and um, what's it supposed to capture? What's it supposed to get for us? Let, let, let me start talking, and you can interrupt me when you think sure. uh, a break would be a good idea or extra clarification. Um, Here's the key background. The physical sciences, by which I mean physics, chemistry, neuroscience, embryology, evolutionary uh, theory, that whole gamut, roughly speaking, uh, everything that gets done outside humanities and social sciences, faculties and universities, um, they've given us a very impressive picture of what we're like. So what we're made of, how our brains respond to the environment, how our brains control the movements of our bodies, uh, the nature of the bits that make us up, the physical chemistry, now, now, and so on and so forth. I'm sure you can fill in the gaps. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, part of that story is a story that you'll find in embryology textbooks where we start out as a very little thing. And it's almost like an assembly line for making making it. You start out as a tiny little thing, and you end up like you and me. Mm-hmm. Now, that whole picture obviously tells us a huge amount about what we're like. And the inspiration behind materialism and physicalism is that it doesn't just tell us a whole lot about what we're like. It tells us about everything, including our psychology. That, yeah. That's the inspiration. And the feeling, it's a very strong feeling, and although I now reject it, when I wrote every film or Collier, I had this feeling, along with lots of people. There's a very strong feeling that, yes, that tells us a hell of a lot, but there's something about conscious mental life, particularly colour experiences and pains and things like that, which somehow gets left out. So what you're looking for is an argument to convince people who are materialists or physicalists that this bit gets left out. Mm. It's no use just saying to them, I have this strong intuition that's left out. Because, of course, they're going to say, well, that's very nice of you. I'm very <laughs> pleased to hear that story about your personal biography. But it's not going to move me very much. Right. So what I was looking for was the best argument to turn that intuition into something they find hard to resist. And the key of thought was this. Imagine a case where you've got all that physical information, but not the psychology stuff. We can imagine a case where you've got that physical story, but not the psychology, and somehow describe it in such a way that becomes apparent 
that you can't get the psychology, in particular the feely side of psychology, out of the physical story, then, then you've made the case. And the Mary room, the knowledge argument, is simply a, a, a way of doing that. Uh, what happens with Mary in the black and white room is you give her all the physical stuff, but no colour experiences. Yeah. Now, of course, she does have experiences of seeing things as being white or grey or black and so on. But, but she's a bit like someone watching a black and white movie. And then she gets the whole physical story, all the details. We credit her with enormous intelligence, unbelievable ability to put things together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So she mm-hmm. got all that. And then what we say is surely when she leaves the room, she realized that there was something about how things are, in particular about our psychology and our conscious mental lives that she knew nothing about and could know nothing about in the black white room. So it's really an exercise in imagining a case where you give someone all the physical stuff, but make vivid that the physical stuff doesn't give you the feely psychological stuff, the conscious side. (laughs) That's the aim of the exercise. Yeah, and a lot of us like think this is just knocked down. It's so good. I've also heard people um, when they when they're discussing the knowledge argument, they'll, they'll have it as a broader category, and they'll they'll include uh, like Thomas Nagel's uh, "What It's Like" paper in there as well. Um, but you've you've distinguished that. Uh, you've distinguished the the Mary argument as a knowledge argument, and you said the "What It's Like" argument is is something different. Um, do you still think that, or, or are they are they picking out the same thing? Why why would someone categorize them both as a, a knowledge argument? Obviously, they're close together. Um, when you read Nagel's paper, um, apart from the paper, it doesn't have the black and white room, mm. which is what I think gives the bite yeah. to the Epiphenomenal Qualia paper. That's what give, gives it the real bite. Um, there's quite a lot about the perspectival nature of conscious experience, mm. and that's that. this is a good thing to say about conscious experience. When you have conscious experience, you experience the world from your point of view. Yeah. So I'm seeing you from my... So when you look at the table next to you, you see the table in relationship to oneself. So that's certainly part of uh, mental life, but it isn't part of the crucial point that lies behind the knowledge argument. Yeah. So I thought that was a bit of a distraction. So I wanted to abstract away from that. Um, but having said that, of course, in Epiphenomenal Qualia, I do put footnotes to earlier versions of the knowledge argument. And since I published that paper of course i've discovered that there are lots and lots of versions of a knowledge yeah. argument indeed arguably there's a version in Locke, and of course Locke lived in the 1600s <laughs> so the argument has a very long history yeah yeah <clears throat> um and yeah it, it's it's super fantastic um this it's i really like the uh, armchair quality of it, uh, and I've I've been going back and forth on on armchair type of philosophy, and I feel like the pressure of certain philosophers saying, "Well, I, I want to get in the lab. I want to be a lab, a, a lab philosopher." But then, you know, I read some Timothy Williamson, and I think, "Well, he's defending the armchair pretty well." I think this is just like one of the classic uh, thought experiments. It says, "Look, we don't need to go lock anyone up in a room for this to to work, or for our intuitions to get going. We don't have to actually pluck a chicken to refute." Uh, Plato's idea of a man, we, we can do this from the armchair. And so I, I think this is just an amazing thought experiment. You've come to reject it. Um, and I want to get into those reasons. But do you, do you still think that uh, philosophy can be done from the armchair, that this is a, a primary way? 
or, or a legitimate way for us to do philosophy? The short answer is yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, suppose I asked you, um, is 17 a prime number? Yeah. Would you like to do an experiment to answer that question? <laughs> you can't. Yeah. Uh, to answer that question, you have to know what it takes to be a prime number. Mm-hmm. And know what it takes to be a prime number is a conceptual analysis. In fact, to be a prime number is to be a number such that it's divisible by exactly two numbers, namely itself and one. Um, once you know that, then you can answer the question of whether seven means uh, a prime number. Here's a second example. It's crucial in statistics that we've got the notion of a random sequence. Mm-hmm. Now, we all know, let's, let's imagine it's coin tossing. We all know that heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails. That's not random. What about heads, heads, tails, tails? No, that's not random. What is a random sequence? You won't find out by examining coin tosses. Uh-huh. What you've got to do is examine the concept of a random sequence. Yeah. Um, and that's a bit of armchair conceptual analysis. And I give that example because, of course, modern statistics is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And so it goes on. Um, I think you can't sensibly do in fact, anything without at some stage asking yourself, what does it take to be unemployed? So you're interested mm. in the unemployment rate. Okay, what's the unemployment rate in America at the moment? Well, it depends what you mean by unemployed. Yeah. Uh, working more than one hour a week, well, that's or five hours. Up. So I, I think it's a big misconception mm. that conceptual analysis is something we don't need to do. Of course we do. Uh, but of course, I'm a huge fan of doing the empirical work as well, right. obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's really good to hear. Um, <clears throat> so, so you came to to deny uh, that this argument was, was sound, um, and part of the reason I, I think was uh, the epiphenomenalism that it that it led to. Um, I wonder. Well, you have this great line. You say um, that was the uh, this argument was the triumph of philosophical cleverness over common sense, and uh, it's. An amazing line there, but why think that it? Why um, think that it would lead to epiphenomenalism instead of like property dualism or full blown uh, substance dualism? Well, let's talk a bit about substance dualism first. Mm-hmm. The context in which epiphenomenal quality was written uh, was the context where most people, materialists or physicalists, yeah, and the dissenters, and I was one of them, mm-hmm. we weren't prepared to go completely against materialism or physicalism. So we said, yep, we know enough about the brain to be able to say that mental states are brain states. So that, that's a discovery of neuroscience, if you like. Yeah. Um, so mental states are brain states. So we're not going to go for substance dualism. What we're going to do is have a kind of materialism with extras. Yeah. And we call it attribute dualism. So that's the background for not going for substance dualism. The idea was that even... A, card-carrying dualists like myself back then. Uh, Substance dualism was a bridge too far. (laughs) So that's why it was attribute dualism. Um, Now, why was the focus on properties? Well, remember, it's properties that govern causal interactions. If X and Y have exactly the same properties, then X and Y will enter into exactly the same causal interactions. So it's actually properties that govern causal interactions. So if you're worried about uh, epiphenomenalism uh, in connection with qualia, you're going to be thinking about properties, not, not, not about substances. So that, that's the background. And the worry was simply that 
I thought of myself as I was writing Epifundal Qualia, didn't I want to say that it was the nature of the qualia that were partly responsible for the words that I was putting down? Right. This, you know, this is pre-typing into laptops. <laughs> the words I was writing down with a fountain pen, and rightly, on a piece of paper. Uh, and I decided that that's just common sense. So although you could give a nice little argument defending the view that qualia would be phenomenal, which is what I did in the, um, in the original paper, um, I just couldn't believe it as I was writing the paper. Surely it was the nature of the qualia which was guiding my hand and what I wrote down, for example, yeah. Here's a good argument against qualia and so on. Sorry, correction. Here's a good argument that qualia aren't covered by physicalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, for, for those who are, who are not as uh, up-to-date or who, who, who we lost in the qualia conversation, um, you, you, I, I love that as you were writing it, you had this reflection that uh, there is mental causation going on, right? Like the, the qualia... Um, mm-hmm it does play a a causal role, but if, if your paper is right, then what you're doing can't actually be true. And it's just like this add on it's epi it's, it's above, but it doesn't also interact back down. Um, so, so you, that, that was already there at the, at the beginning, as you were writing, I think is, is really cool. Um, what finally pushed you over the edge to say, you know, I, yeah, I like it. I could see being super tempted, just dig in your heels on this argument it's amazing everyone always continues to talk about it but you said look i just i don't think it's right and you you backed off what what was do you remember was there a, a final straw or anything like that i guess it was a a gradual process uh i started out saying this is problem with epiphenomenalism uh and i always thought from day one that i had to be honest about it Mm. So I could have I could have left that bit out of the paper. Right. <laughs> I could have just written a paper defending the knowledge argument and avoided this slightly embarrassing question about epiphenomalism. But I said, no, that, that wouldn't be intellectually honest. So I knew I had to face up to it. I said, I've got something to say about it, which is what I say in the in the paper. Um and I sort of vaguely happy with that. And remember also there's a bit in the paper, which I, I do think is right, saying that things might be much more mysterious than we realize. So we, we mustn't think that everything is easy and straightforward. So sometimes you have to grab onto something that's obviously right. And back then I thought the knowledge argument was obviously right. Yeah. And then we admit there are various things that have to be tidied up, not sure what to say, uh, wait for my next period of research leave or whatever, or wait mm-hmm. for someone else to come along and do the job for me. Um, so that's that's where I was back then. And then over time I worried more and more and while I was worrying, uh, I consistently refused invitations to give talks about the knowledge argument because huh. I didn't really know what to say. And then I got converted to representationalism uh, by a whole lot of people like Michael Tai and Bill Lichen and David Armstrong. And once I got converted to representationalism, I could see how you could reply to the knowledge argument. And once the conversion occurred, I thought, okay, I can now start writing about the knowledge argument again, and I can say the key to answering it is to be a representationist about phenomenal experience. So that, 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 that's roughly the story. Okay. Um, do, you, do you remember um, interacting with, like, uh, David Lewis or Michael Ty or David Armstrong? Do, do you remember um, their reactions to, to your paper? Uh, the two people I talked to about the paper were David Armstrong and David Lewis. Um, 
And David Armstrong was worried about the argument. I, I, I don't mean he was converted. <laughs> uh, I mean, that you could see there was something really to worry about. Yeah. Um, Lewis's position, I think, was slightly more complicated. Um, in a way, he was a friend of the argument. Hmm. That sounds surprising because but in his paper, What Experience Teaches, a lot of that paper is about various objections on the knowledge argument, which he thinks fail. So hmm. in a way, I regard that, this is back when I believed in the argument, as a very friendly paper. Yeah. Because here is someone of Lewis's standing explaining that all sorts of objections to the argument weren't actually much good. And that that was music to my ears. Um, but of course, he did think it was the argument failed, nevertheless, because of the ability, his famous ability to reply along with Lawrence Nimero. Um, so that that's the history. In exchanges with David, we had one long session about it. And this is a very characteristic David Lewis story, and perhaps you, people, such a great figure and a wonderful philosopher. Yeah. He, he came across the argument. And he decided to go through his knowledge, sorry, his ability to reply. Mm-hmm. Now, Lewis is someone who could produce a whole paper just talking. <laughs> you know, most of us have to sit down in front of a laptop or get out a piece of paper and write. Lewis just, it came out. And it came out just as I was preparing dinner at our house in Melbourne mm. for David and Steffi and other people. So here I am putting together things for, for dinner and so on. And here's David Lewis giving this wonderfully clear discussion of the argument, the various things that people have said that aren't right, and what the ability to reply is. And, of course, here I was in between um, possibly opening a bottle of wine or setting the table, <laughs> interpolating <laughs> this or that response to what, what David said about it. And, of course, mm-hmm. the end of it came out in that paper, What Experience Teaches. That's so That's so cool. Yeah, that's really great. I love hearing your interactions with him um so so would you um well actually you talked just briefly about about lewis's reply to the argument um and is it i think you mentioned abilities is it like a is it that mary gained a new ability is that the, the our new concept to to see red she she knew all the physical facts but now she has the ability is that was that lewis's view yes but i i do think when you read lewis's paper it's impossible to see that he's right. <laughs> you have to set it against a representationalist account of perceptual experiences. Okay. But he doesn't set it against that background. Um, if you set it against a representationalist view of perceptual experiences, then what's happening when you have a colour experience, for example, is you're in a very distinctive kind of representational state. Yeah. Um, now, that means that the wrong way to think about perceptual experiences is some kind of confrontation with the property. Yeah. You're not confronted with the property. You're in a state which urges on you that property is instantiated. Mm-hmm. So take the famous straight stick looking bent in water. Yeah. One thing you mustn't say, I'm confronted with bentness. No, no, <laughs> nothing's bent. Yeah. In the water, on the stick, in the brain, nowhere. So where does the bent look come from? Where does the feeling that the word bent is exactly the right word to describe the experience. It comes from the fact that your brain is telling you, oh, by the way, it's bent. It's bent, it's bent, it's bent. <laughs> it's that. That's what's happening. Um, but don't think you're confronted with bentness. Now, that's not just a point about shape. 
It's the point about the whole nature of perceptual experience. It's the redness, the yellowness, the movingness, the roundness, the tiltedness. All of those, you're not confronted with instances of those properties. You're rather in a state which urges on you. This is how the world in front of you is. Now, what happens to Mary is that she's missing out on one way of representing the world to be a coloured way. Uh, she doesn't have that ability. Yeah. She has all the shape stuff. Mm-hmm. And, of course, she knows all about reflectance profiles and the way that the brain and the, the eye processes information from light. And all, she knows all that stuff. Yeah. And, of course, she knows people outside the room use the word yellow or the word red to describe what's going on. She knows all that. But this ability she doesn't have, she can't enter into a representational state which says, it's red, it's yellow. That she can't do. And that's what happened when she leaves the room. Suddenly she gets that ability. So that's the way to see, I think, that Nemero and Lewis essentially put their finger on the crucial thing. Mm. She doesn't learn more information about the world or about what we're like in the world. She acquires an ability, which she didn't have before. An analogy I often use, then I'll stop so you can ask some questions. An analogy <laughs> I often use is face recognition. Mm-hmm. Some people are face blind. They can't recognise someone as someone they've seen before or as someone they haven't seen before. Um, and it's an awful nuisance, as you might imagine. Yeah. Imagine someone who's face blind. In a sense, they know what they're missing out on. But they can't imagine what it would be like to see faces alike. But... So that's the way to think about Mary. She's like someone who's face blind, and when she leaves the room, she suddenly gets cured. And then she acquires an ability she didn't didn't have before. Yeah. So I wonder if that if that ability, um, if the ability view gives her more knowledge, though. Like if if I couldn't recognize your face, uh, but then I'm I'm cured and I'm I'm zapped or whatever. Uh lightning bolt hits me and now I can recognize faces, and now I see that it's it's Dr. Frank Jackson in front of me. Uh I would have to have pre um, and then I meet you again. And now I can, now I can say, Oh, that's what Frank Jackson's face looks like. Uh, this whole time he'd have to keep reintroducing himself, but I didn't have the knowledge because I didn't have the ability. And and maybe perhaps similar analogously uh, Mary, now she has this ability, but the ability actually gives her new knowledge. Now she can uh, have knowledge of the redness of a strawberry. Uh, what, what do you make of that? Is that, is that crazy? Well, of course, in one sense, we know that when she leaves the room, she does acquire extra knowledge. Okay. For example, she learns that she's left the room. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, that's new. Uh, and, of course, she knows she's having new sorts of experiences, different okay. from the ones she had before. So the question really is, has she learned something uh, about the kinds of properties to be found in our world? Yeah. Um, and, in fact, you can think of it not as properties of her own, the property. Remember, she's been examining people on television, black and white television, and she notices they utter the word yellow or green in certain circumstances. She knows all the, uh, the optical science that lies behind their producing those words. So she's known all that. Uh, but the sense behind the argument is, nevertheless, there's been something she doesn't know. Yeah. There's a distinctive yellowness that the people who've uttered the word yellow were experiencing, which she didn't know about. And she leaves the room things look yellow to her, suddenly she learns something about them. Uh, that's, that, that's the issue about extra knowledge. Um, and what the representationalist can say is, it's not extra knowledge about those other people. Rather, she's acquired an ability to represent 
in the same way that they have been able to represent all along. Mm. But that, that's what's happening. Um, it's yeah. like someone who's face blind, who knows other people aren't face blind, and says, I wonder what it'll be like. I, I know the people who aren't face blind can do something I can't do. I know exactly what it is. What would it be like for me to be able to do what they can do? Yeah. And then they suddenly get cured, and then suddenly faces just look alike. <laughs> and okay, well, that's yeah. the idea. Well, so um, because uh, if, if I'm looking at your face, your face hasn't changed just because my ability to recognize it has yeah. changed. So, so the external world of your face uh, your face in the external world stays exactly the same. It's, it's my ability that's changed. Now I can recognize. So I, it's not like there's new information that I'm gaining. That, that, that's exactly right. Chair. Okay. What's happened is, of course, we, we know what underlies facial recognition. It's a very complex structure and people who write programs for Apple and computer scientists, that, that's what they do. They write programs that pick out the relevant pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, our brains can somehow do it. They don't tell us what the pattern is. Although we've got a hunch idea, it's got something to do with the eyes and the nose and the chin. Hmm. I mean, we know it's not to do with the back of the head because <laughs> you don't even see the back of the head to recognise people's faces. Yeah. Um, but we don't know quite what drives it. And what the ability does is suddenly we see them as a like being driven by something. We don't actually know which property drives it. But of course, Mary will know which property drives colour judgments because hmm. she's done all the optical science. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I wanted to pitch. I wanted to pitch it in a different way. And I, when I when I was thinking of this, I thought, man, this could be really profound, or this could be incredibly stupid. So uh, feel free uh, to to let me know if this is really dumb. But I, I wanted to think about Mary as like a, a Frank Jackson expert. We locked her in a room, and she never she's never met you, but she studied your CV. She's looked at a, a bunch of your brain scans. Uh, maybe we could just stipulate that Mary's omniscient with respect to all third person or physical facts about Dr. Frank Jackson. Um, and then you, um, you appear on her podcast or she's released from the room where there's no Frank Jackson and uh, she can go and, and talk to you in person. Um, I, she has like this first person awareness, this interpersonal knowledge of you now, because you, you've spoken to her, she's spoken to you and you're, you're, you're knowing each other on this like acquaintance level. And I wonder, did, even though she knew she was omniscient with in regards to all the physical facts about you, um, did she gain something? Did she learn something new by meeting you in person? I think the, the short answer is no, but I think you're putting your finger on an important issue that often comes up when people discuss the very argument. And that's the point that there's a kind of location information hmm. which can't be given in purely third-person physical terms. Yeah. Um, and, and let me give a simple example to bring this out. Um, let's imagine that there's some really fancy physics which proves that there are exact duplicates of you and me somewhere in space-time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, matter-antimatter dualism proves that actually there's an exact duplicate of you, an exact duplicate of me somewhere out there somewhere. Yeah. Never interact. If we ever interacted, we destroy each other. It matter, antimatter. So that's okay. the idea. Now, if that happened, you and I would be in the following slightly strange position. We wouldn't know who we were. You could say, well, let's take me. Yeah. I, I've got a grey beard. I've got headphones on, glasses. I've got a watch. Somewhere there's someone with a grey beard, headphones, 
watch. You say to yourself, headphones, great moustache, <laughs> black microphone in front of you, grey T-shirt. And then hold on, there are two of us. Which one am I? Mm. Actually, you wouldn't know. Now, what this tells us is that you can have complete knowledge about the distribution of properties without knowing who you are. Mm. And maybe you learn that uh, one of you is going to die tomorrow and the other one's going to be alive tomorrow. So you're mad keen to be the one who's going to be alive tomorrow, yeah. not the one who's going to be dead tomorrow. You can't find out. There's only one horrible way to find out. Wait for time to pass. Mm. Um, so this is a general point. It just makes the point that location information is something special. Now, different philosophers have different views about how to spell the specialness out. But I don't think there's any controversy that complete knowledge of how the world is in terms of distribution of properties won't give you location information. And the little story I told illustration of that, other ways of making the same point. Mm-hmm. Now, some people have thought this is relevant to the Mary argument because it tells you complete physical information, but it properties, in some sense, is incomplete because it leaves out this location information. But I think that's a mistake because location information is not information about distribution of properties. Okay. The crucial thing about the Mary argument, remember, is that the conclusion of it is that there are more properties than Mary dreamt of in the black and white room. Mm-hmm. It's an extra properties argument. So I've always thought this point about location it's a really nice point, but actually doesn't bear directly on the Mary argument because it doesn't tell us that there are properties that run things. It tells us location is different. Knowledge of location is different from knowledge of distribution of properties. Hmm. That's what happens to you and me when we can't work out whether we're which one we are. We know how the properties are distributed, and we hope like mad if one of them dies tomorrow and the other one doesn't. We hope like mad that we're we're the one that's going to be alive tomorrow. But yeah. Well, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I wonder. This is this is probably talking too too fast and loose about properties, but could couldn't like spatial location be a, a property? I have the property of being in this this location right now, whereas the other one does not. The short answer is yes. Of course, the, the word property is an elastic term. Okay. Um, I was thinking though of properties in terms of. Uh, Corresponding to similarity classes. Okay. So, so being a rectangle is a property. Why is that? Because all rectangles are alike in a certain distinctive way. Yeah. Being a table is a property because all tables are alike in a certain way. And what happens in the Mary argument is that there's the likenesses and unlikenesses, which it appears she doesn't know about. Yeah. Uh, to you convert representationalism, there's a likeness between uh, butter and ripe lemons. Mm-hmm. The distinctive yellowness, yeah, which you didn't know about until she was let out of the room. Okay, okay, yeah, that's that's really helpful. What about um, <clears throat> what about like what about the indexical I? Like it's it's maybe for me it's like an informative designator or something, and 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 I have the I that's attached to this Parker, mm-hmm. whereas I the, the other one doesn't have this I, and so you know it's an informative I is an informative designator for me, but not for. Um, I don't know. I forgot which one I am. If I'm positive or, or like antimatter, but let's call him antimatter because I want to be the yeah. The sure. positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What What do you make of that? Do I do I have different knowledge because I have this designator? Um, it 
depends. There's a lot of controversy about the proposition expressed by sentences that start I. Yeah. As in, I have a beard. Mm -hmm. I I believe I have a beard. In fact, I'm absolutely certain I have a beard. Um, What proposition do I believe when I believe that I have a beard? Now, here's my view about this. Okay. it's a mistake to think it's a proposition at all. When do you believe that the, the belief you express when you say, I have a beard, is the belief that you belong to the class of those with beards. Uh-huh. It's class membership. Oh, okay. Um, so don't ask for the proposition. Don't ask for the mysterious property that somehow locates I. <laughs> Say to yourself, when you believe that I have a beard, what you believe is that you belong to the class of those with beards. So it's class, class membership. Um, do you know the, the famous Perry story about the the person spilling sugar in the supermarket? Yeah, yeah, it's a great one. Yeah, yeah it's a great story. Now, the way I think about it, it's not the way Perry thinks about it, and he no doubt object to what I'm about to say, which I expect he would. Um, mm-hmm. When you come to realise that you are the person spilling the sugar, mm-hmm. the sentence you use in English, in Chinese you use different sentences, the sentence in English is, I am spilling the sugar. Yeah. But the way I look at it, what happens is this. You suddenly realise that you've joined the class of those spilling sugar. Hmm. Beforehand, you knew that someone belonged to the class of sugar spillers. Yeah. You hear the sugar on the floor. What happens is when you realise, oh, my dear, it's me, what you realise is that you actually are a member of that class. That, 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 that's my particular take on what happens when people use I to express their, their states of knowledge or belief. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, is that a new is that a new item of, of knowledge? Um, so at first you you saw someone, someone was spilling that, and then you come to find out that the someone is you and you belong to that class. When you go, aha, um it, it's me, is that is that new or is it just like yeah. uh is that uh, new? That, no, that, no, no, that, I, no, that's that, that that's new information. Okay. I think yeah. Yep. Okay. Um what it is, and this is a point that Lewis made some years ago in a famous day say paper. What's happening is your new information is information about the class to which you belong. It's not new information about the kind of world you belong to. Okay. You knew, take the sugar example. You knew from the beginning that you belong to a world where someone rather was spilling sugar. Yeah. And you still think that when you realize it's you. Mm-hmm. So you don't learn more about the world. You okay. knew from the, the get go. Right. You're in a world where someone was spilling sugar. What happens is you learn the same about the class you belong to, which you never want. So sometimes extra information or extra knowledge is a matter of knowledge about the class to which you belong. Okay. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Okay, so so bringing it back to um, just back to, to my version of the knowledge. Um, so you, you would say that um, Mary, the Frank Jackson expert, who knew all the physical facts about you, including brain, she was omniscient, concerning all of the physical facts she did not learn something new when she came to actually meet you in, a, in an acquaintance no she didn't learn anything about the kinds of properties there were she learned something about her location in space okay. time okay and what did she learn uh i'm now located opposite someone called frank jackson okay. of course she didn't know that before because yeah. of course it wasn't true so she couldn't have known it it wasn't true so she learned something about her location in fact it's a general point about perceptual experience. Perceptual experiences very plausibly tell you about 
how things are relative to oneself. Mm-hmm. And that's the same as class members. So, so, so when you see the sun come up, you learn that the sun is a certain distance vis-a-vis yourself. And the way I look at it, what happens is you learn that you're now in the class of people, thus and so related to the rising sun. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this is good. So um, you use this terminology, which at first like blew me away. And then I heard it a few times. Um, uh, shout out to uh, Friction Philosophy. I, I listened to your episode a couple times uh, on, on that channel. So everyone go check that one out. It's really good as well. Um, but, but you talked about how um, now you've learned, Mary's learned when she looked at a red apple, she looked at, uh, she's learned information about surface properties of objects relative to a particular network of similarity and difference relations. And so um, I was wondering about like, is that just representationalism or is that a form of representationalism? And then did that network of similarity and difference relations, did that already exist when she was in the room or did that, did that come with these new experiences? Well, let's take a step back. Representationalism, as I'm reading it, says the sensory nature of experiences comes from how things are being represented to be. So in that old stick-looking painting water, mm-hmm. the paintingness comes from the fact that you're in a state that represents that something's bent. So that, that's, the, that's okay. where the qualia comes from, so to speak. Well, real quick, Dr. Jackson, um, yeah. do, do you ever, do you like the word, the phrase... Uh... Or the terminology like appeared to like are you being appeared to Bentley is that is that something that you would say or is that connote something uh, different no no that's fine that that's the sort of thing a verbial theorist like to say okay you're in a state of uh, it's an adverbial modifier of how mm-hmm. things look to you to be um, now I think it's okay English slightly funny English <laughs> yeah but yeah. <laughs> philosophically I think it's slightly misleading uh, it's mm. better to say it like a representationalist who says, look, what's happening is you're in a state that represents something's bent. And in fact, it's slightly more complicated than that. It's more that you're in a state where you're aware that you're in a state that represents something's bent. So it's actually your awareness of how things are being represented to be that actually gives the feel, in my view. Okay. Now, if that's right, then you have to match up the phenomenology of experiences with the feel yeah now in the case of color it, it just isn't true that things since feel as if they've got a reflectance profile mm-hmm. i mean if optical scientists are right uh colors do match up with the reflectance profiles in fact plausibly uh what causes an object to look a certain color is its reflectance profile at least we're talking about surface color yeah but of course no one thinks when something looks yellow they somehow are being urged by their brain to believe it's got a certain reflectance profile. But of course, if something looks to be moving, there is a sense in which their brain is urging on them the opinion that it is moving. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to get colour within the representationalist um, way of looking at things, I think you have to say that the representational properties are in fact places in a similarity space. Because it is plausible when something looks a certain colour you see it as being related to other surfaces. Hmm. So uh, when something looks yellow, it looks rather like orange. In fact, an orange looks somewhere between yellow and red. Mm-hmm. And pink looks between right and red. And red and green look very different. And white is much lighter 
than black. Hmm. Yellow is darker than white, but lighter than dark blue, and so on and so forth. So what's the representational content of perceptual experiences, I think, is location in a complex similarity and difference matrix. Okay. And, and what uh, happens to Mary, of course, is that yeah. suddenly she can access the location just by looking rather than by doing really complicated calculations on her computer. Okay, okay. And and um, some, sometimes people will, will give... It, it's got a little bit of... Um, like the categories of understanding going on, like uh, uh, from Kant and people go, well, Kant never answered why we all have the same categories. But would you just say, look, we all evolved uh, with these same similarity and difference, uh, this, this matrix in our head. And so Mary, <clears throat> Mary couldn't utilize those because she wasn't appeared to, or, or she'd never had these surfaces appearing to her, but then she could, and, and she was biologi- biologically designed. Yeah. Um <clears throat> If you read evolutionary biologists uh, talking about colour, in fact, it's the role of colours in discriminating things and seeing things as alike and different. And, and that, that's why we evolved. So you, the ripe berries against the dark leaves, um, uh, it gives us basically uh, an extra dimension with which to find food or detect potential predators. So one way of finding food is to know that the fat round things are ripe. Another way is when they look nice and red, they're ripe. So you get an extra, uh, you get an extra arrow in your. Uh, there's something else in your armory for handling the world. That 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 that's the idea. Okay. Okay. Excuse me <clears throat> for them. It's having a coughing fit there, man. Um, Doctor Jackson, could you give me one second to get some water, really quick? Of course. Okay, sorry about that. <clears throat> All right. Thank you again. This is like nightmare for me. <clears throat> okay. All right. So, um, so we have we have these uh, similarity and difference matrix going on. That's helping us do some work here. Um, <clears throat> I wonder about representationalism and. Uh, whether or not like reality is mediated through concepts that we have <clears throat> and whether that would be a problem for like realism. What, what, do, what do you make of that? The representation of view is realist to the following extent. Representations can and should insist that the way things are being represented to be is the way they really are in lots of cases. So you're realist to that extent. Um, But you can also agree that the sense in which in perception, an awful lot of the world is concealed from us. Um, I mean, take a very, very old point. Uh, We see objects as by and large, reasonably smooth and continuous. They're not. (laughs) They're collections of molecules bound in an array where the gaps between the molecules are a hell of a lot bigger than the molecules themselves. So the sense in which they're sort of awfully big sponges, they don't look like that. Um, so the sense in which the whole lot of the real nature of the world is concealed from us, and, and science tells us um, about the real nature, but it doesn't mean that uh, perception's all an illusion. It is true that uh, surfaces are by and large flat, 
uh, of course, being flat isn't quite what you might have thought it was, not quite as smooth and continuous as you might have thought, but nevertheless, there's a difference between uh, mountain ranges and the top of the table in front of me. Yeah. Uh, So uh, you could be a realist in in that sense, Um, but it is true that in perception, an awful lot of the real nature of the world is concealed from you, and I don't think one should be too surprised about that. You should just be grateful Uh that very smart people are carrying out experiments to find out the real nature uh, of the world. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. I wonder. Um, uh, I wonder about concept acquisition. If you have a, a particular theory that that you like, um, whether a mixed view between like some kind of nativism or innateism, or um, or if you're an empiricist on that, I, I think of like <clears throat> um, Donald Davidson has this triangulation argument where he's trying to say that we acquire our concepts through this triangular pattern of fixing the content of our thoughts and our speech through our parents or through a, a, a native speaker, someone who's already has a language. And he, he tries to get around um, any kind of skeptical worries there. I wonder, do, do you have a, a particular favorite theory of com- concept acquisition? Well, I think the question is whether there are concepts that are innate and not acquired is really a question for science. Okay. Um, but of course we acquire concepts uh, indeed, uh, I'm sure both you and I acquired the concept of space-time as we were students. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we had the concept of space when we were little kids at school and time. We, you know, we knew that time passed, but there was those lectures in my case, physics one, not sure in your case, in which they explained, well, actually, this chap called Einstein came along and you actually have to think in terms of space-time. Yeah. Now, that was certainly a, a concept I acquired. Uh, another one I acquired is the concept of an inertial frame. Again, mm. doing physics one. Uh, they're, they're two examples out of out of, out of hundreds. Um, but being acidic, being alkaline, it, it, so we certainly acquire concepts. Um, uh, I'm sure we acquire some concepts through interacting with other people. Yeah. Indeed, I acquired the concept of an inertial frame by interacting with the person teaching physics one. In the lectures I attended. Um, but I'm afraid I don't agree with Davidson that having a language is necessary for acquiring new concepts. Okay. I think animals that live rather solitary lives have concepts. What I mean by saying they've got concepts is they have beliefs about the nature of their surroundings. Mm-hmm. And when you have belief about the nature of your surroundings, what you're doing is you're bringing your surroundings under a concept. Um, that is, seeing and exemplifying a property or seeing it, we're going to talk about similarity, is exemplifying a certain similarity or pattern. Uh, and I think that uh, solitary animals acquire concepts. You can tell that from the way they interact with their environment. Uh, they don't need to um, carry out conversation with other people. Yeah. So D- Davidson, as you know, of course, had this, I think, rather offbeat view that animals without languages couldn't have beliefs because of his triangulation argument. Yeah. Uh, I belong to the vast majority, which thinks that, that, that that's a mistake. Okay, okay. Um, he might, this doesn't have to get into Davidson too much, but he might say, like, well, he, he means propositional uh, propositional attitudes or something. And so the, they can have beliefs, but maybe they're not, <clears throat> I, maybe you have to redefine beliefs or something, but like the, there's not propositional content to their beliefs. Do you, do you think that animals have beliefs? 
Well, you can always, of course, redefine the subject. Yeah. So you win the argument. <laughs> right. You know, the old saying, what's an easy way of extending life expectancy? Redefine death. <laughs> <laughs> so, but more substantively, um, when I say it's obvious with, with the vast majority that animals have beliefs, uh, I mean they have beliefs in the sense of states which can be true or false. Okay. So they've got to be propositional to that extent. Sure. Now, of course, they might be. And we were saying before, but I think some beliefs are beliefs about the class to which you belong. So in that sense, they're class membership beliefs. They're not propositional in the classical <clears throat> sense. Okay. Um, a, a belief about the class to which you belong is true if and only if you belong to the class. But nevertheless, it's propositional in the more inclusive sense that it, it's accessible for truth and falsity. Yeah. Uh, so when I say animals have beliefs, I mean they're in states which are belief-like, which can be true or false. Maybe they don't have belief star states, so maybe Davidson wins the argument for belief star. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, that's really good. Well, so you've, <clears throat> you've, uh, you've, you've converted to representationalism, and I, I take it that um, you also hold like a, a type-type uh, physicalism, is that is that right? That's right. I, I, nowadays I hold the kind of argument that you found in Armstrong, Medlin, Smart, mm-hmm. Lewis, way back. Um, mental states are, as a matter of fact, brain states, and they get to be the kind of brain... St- Sorry, I said it wrong. Mental states are brain states, and they get to be the kind of mental state they are because of the functional roles that their brain states play. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I, I'm, I wonder about, like, if I, if I know my pain state, if I know that I'm in pain, um, if I know that I'm in pain or experiencing pain, uh, I, I have that knowledge, but I don't have knowledge that it's uh, like a C-fiber firing. And so it seems like, I, th- I think some people sometimes use this and say, look, it doesn't look like they're the same thing after all. Um, but, but the type type folks say, no, they are. Can, can you help me explain like, how, how would you think through that, that I have this direct awareness of one thing, but I actually can't know that it's my pain uh c fire c fiber firing except through like a mediated way i have to look at a mirror and through my eyes and, and see my brain what do you think about that well remember that the type type theory i like says <clears throat> that mental states are brain states but the kind of mental state they are it's determined by their functional role oh yeah what okay. you know when you know you're in pain is you know the functional role of the yeah. states you're in and what functional role well, I think most people who stub their toe know A, what caused it, mm-hmm. B, where the damage likely is, C, what they desire, maybe it stops, and yeah. D, what behavioural responses are prompted, namely reaching for the aspirin, bending down, nursing the foot, giving it a rub so the pain will will go away and so on and so forth so actually they have a a lot of functional knowledge about the state they're in okay and that's that's the knowledge (laughs) that determines the kind of mental state they're in um okay and and that can be that can that can be realized in in different animals and different uh martians yes is the answer yeah um so that when i say i'm a type type theorist uh of course i'm not saying it's the same type of brain state yeah. in different people. And of course, I'm open to the idea that there might be machines in the future 
which have metal sets the same as ours. Okay. And of course, in those cases, they won't be brain sets like ours. Uh, I was going to say they'd be silicon states, but but who knows what sort of states sure. they'll be in, in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's helpful. Um, how about um, how about arguments like intentionality that that physical things aren't about things, but um, mental mental states are about things, and so it seems like we can't identify. Uh, I keep slipping back into like identity theory type stuff, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. What, how do you explain uh, intentionality in, in your view? I think intentionality is a complex causal property okay. of our brains <laughs> as it happens. Um, a, a way of thinking about it is this: um, when we interact with the world, we tend to behave in such a way that if our beliefs are true. Our desires are satisfied? No, but that's just a very shorthand. I'll say it again. When we interact with the world, we tend to behave in a way such that if our beliefs are true, our desires are satisfied. Okay. Now, what that means is that when you study a creature interacting with the world, you can describe their behavior in terms of function mm-hmm. that takes them from possible states of the world to different states. When we, when we behave, we change the way things are around us. So we get a function that goes from possible states to start with, think of those as beginning states, yeah. but other set, the end states, and then we map it using that rule. We behave in such a way that if your beliefs are true, your desires satisfied. And that means you can match up states of the head with sets of possible worlds, and that's where intentionality comes from. Now, what I've given you is an extremely crude version of Robert Stallnaker inquiry. <laughs> Yeah. But that, 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 that's the story. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. If, um, if there are causal states, like I know some people, I don't know the argument well enough um, to, to raise it here, but some people would say if there, if intentionality is causal like that, then you might be giving up um, like self-knowledge or certain, certain, yeah, certain self-knowledge, because if you're, if you're reflecting on the inside, if, if you're just, you know, yeah, reflecting on your own, your own quality, your own thoughts, whatever. It seems like there might not be um, the, the causal uh, view of intentionality going on there. And so, if we do have, if we do need two relata or something, and the intentionality is the relation between the two, but there's there's only one in self knowledge, then it seems like we've given up self knowledge. Is that is that doesn't make any any sense? Well, any bells? For a type-type identity theory, of course, self-knowledge is knowledge about the brain. Okay. But it yeah. won't be knowledge about its neuroscientific nature. It'll mm. be knowledge about its functional roles. Okay. So the, the idea is one of the things we know is we know something about the functional roles of states inside us. Um, so, for example, um, when I reach for a bottle of wine, uh there might be mental, many mental states that explains it. Mm-hmm. I might want a drink myself. I might want to give someone else a drink. Yeah. I might want to give the impression that I do, in fact, drink, although actually I'm an abstainer. But in the social company, I mean, it would be slightly embarrassing to say so. So I give all the impression of reaching. Uh, and I might, the explanation might be, I actually believe it's a bottle of water. I haven't got my glasses on. And what I want is a bottle of... So 
that there are many mental states that might be explaining my behavior. Um, and we have knowledge of those mental states as well as, well as having knowledge of, of, of the world around us. So in a way, the story about uh, your knowledge of your own mental states and the intentionality of those mental states is, is the kind of self-scanning picture. Um, and that, that makes sense that we should think fancy smart creatures. It's a good idea not only to be in states that guide us through the world, but actually have knowledge yeah. of these states and the way they guide us through the world. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. I thought maybe we, uh, we could finish off with, with just one more about, uh, about qualia and, and such. Um, I wonder about um, inverted qualia and, and whether that's a possibility on the type type view. And, and if it is a possibility, is that a problem? Cause it seems like just initially um, if <clears throat> we're both uh, looking at the same, you know, yellow highlighter or whatever, and we're both in the same functional role or our, our mental states, there's a, there's input, there's mental states and there's an output, but I'm seeing this as highlighter yellow and you're seeing it as my violet purple, then that might be a, a problem for this, this view. Is, is that a problem or, or maybe um, inverted qualia just is not uh, possible? Well, there are two ways to go. And, I'm never quite sure which way to go, but here's the simplest way to go. <laughs> if you think of the relationship between the colors in terms of the color solid, then in fact, there, there are three axes of similarity and difference. There's the hue, that's the difference between red and green. There's saturation, that's whether it's a washed out green or not washed out green. And there's lightness and darkness. So white is the lightest, black is the darkest. So there are three axioms. Three axes of similar difference. And when you look at the color solid representing this, it's asymmetrical. Yeah. It's not lovely symmetrical thing. In fact, it, you look at it, it bulges where the yellow is. It bulges where the yellow is because yellow is by nature a light or bright color. Mm -hmm. So you can saturate yellow and still have lots of lightness and brightness. So you've got yellow in your hand now. Yeah. You can give more yellow and it remains bright. So it bulges out on the left. Okay, so if the view I like in terms of location in a similarity difference matrix is right, and we bear in mind that there are three axes, mm -hmm. Q, lightness, brightness, saturation, it's not possible to permute and preserve relationships. So that would be the nice view. And that's the view I hope is true. Okay. Uh, if that turns out to be false, then that'll be part of the story. But part of the story will simply be that our visual system latches on to similarity differences between external stimuli. Mm. So blood is red, and the redness will be partly detecting the similarity between what happens when you look at a ripe tomato and what happens when you look at blood. So then you'll have to appeal to the external stimuli mm. uh, to solve this, what's called, what you basically put your finger on is what sometimes called the permutation problem. So two ways to go. I like the first way. Because I like to think it's completely contingent that blood is red. <laughs> yeah. Might have been green as it is in some space movies. Sure. But if I have to, I'll abandon that and say, okay. <laughs> that, seems, um, that seems reasonable. Yeah, I, I like that. Well, <clears throat> Dr. Jackson, thanks, thanks so much for, for all your time here. Thanks for your paper. I, I'm I'm so grateful that you're uh, you're willing to continue to talk to people who want to talk about Mary, and uh, I really appreciate the way that you've taken this. That you don't you're not embarrassed that that the argument didn't turn out to be 
uh, sound. You actually, you're, you're still glad that it blesses so many people and, and intrigues so many people. Um, I actually, I'm, I'm a substance dualist myself. I'm sorry for everyone listening, but so I still really, really like the argument, but you've given me so much to think about here and, and to help me think through substances and properties and why we're pointing to properties here. And, um, it's just fantastic. I really, really appreciate your work. And, um, I'm sorry if you've been pigeonheld as just the Mary guy, because you've done so much other work as well. Maybe you, maybe I can coax you on to talking about some of your stuff in, uh, in ethics and in other fields as well. Absolutely. That would be just fine. And it might be nice for me because I would tell you about things which I still believe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Take care. Thanks very much, Parker. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Jackson. All right. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.